baseball this podcast. Maybe not right away, but we'll get to it because I got sucked into the main event and uh, I'm glad I did it. I'm happy with my team. I'll talk about it in detail, what I was thinking, what I did. I think it's a good team, although the uh, projected standings that they do through, uh, I don't know if it's fantasy pros projections or whatever, has me in dead last. And that's fine. I mean, I don't care if the projections agree with me, but the two good players that I know of, I mean, there's a lot of good players. Vlad Sedler is really good too, but Abdulaziz Madani, I, I found out his first name, uh, is a very good player and he's projected for first. And Larry Schechter is a very good player, a guy I've played with a ton in expert leagues. And he's projected for second and I'm projected for last. So I'd feel better about being last if a bunch of random people I didn't know were projected for first, but the two guys I know are very good players are projected for first and second. I'm projected for last. Again, I don't really care, but it is what it is. I just figured I'd put that out there. I'm still very pleased with my team, and we'll get into that. I took some chances that I feel good about. But before we get there, maybe some self-reflection stuff that I, I may delete. Uh, sometimes I listen to this stuff back when I'm editing, and it, I'm like, this is just boring stuff. But I'll just, I'll just say it because it's on my mind. That's sort of my policy, and then clean it up in, uh, in post. So... You know, I'm doing these sites and I'm just sort of like, all right, I'm, I'm going to keep posting. I'm going to keep doing stuff. I've gotten some good feedback, got some contributions. I feel like, okay, it's resonating with some people. I'm just going to keep podcasting, keep writing about stuff. Uh, but I feel this pressure and, I, and it's not from anybody, uh, any of you guys. It's just, I feel this pressure. Like I got to keep doing stuff every week. I'm terrified that if I just stop, stop feeling the need to produce content, to make more stuff, to keep writing, keep podcasting that I'll just start. And, you know, I've done this on weekends to start drinking with some friends, socializing, having some seafood by the beach, some glass of wine, get some sun. I'll get sidetracked into this life of comfort and I'll lose my edge and I'll just sort of fade away. Absurd when you think about it, but I just have this fear that if I don't keep working and producing, like I'm going to deteriorate somehow, like an athlete that didn't train anymore and got out of shape, tired from football, and then just kind of let himself go. Uh, you never want to go full Kirby Puckett. But yeah, it's uh, it's just a, it's like, and so it's like this anxiety of like, oh, I got to get, I got to make something. And I've got maybe, I'm not exaggerating, 20 drafts of things that I've half written, 20 outlines for ideas that I haven't written yet. I may talk about some of those, but I mentioned this before, when you talk about your idea, verbalize it too much, sometimes there's nothing left to write. So you gotta be careful of that. But I've got all these posts that are half written. And the problem is like, I have this like desire to like get this stuff out there and keep putting out content and keep engagement up and keep engaging with people. But the thing is like these written pieces, they, they need editing. I mean, they, they're not ready. They're not ready for prime time. They're not ready for consumption. There's some interesting seeds of an idea, seeds of a piece, but they're not completely, they're not completely ready for people. Anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find some of these, these outlines. I'll read some of them, but I'm not going to get too deep into these because here it is. Okay, so one of the ideas is called the default. It's about how eating non-processed foods or even meditating where you're not obsessing over the future, the past, regrets, hopes, fears. Those things aren't good. It's not good to eat unprocessed foods. It's not good to meditate. It's just the default. So that when you're fasting or eating unprocessed food, you're not doing something good. You're just doing the default because you've evolved over millions of years to eat that way or to fast. 
people didn't always have food available. And so you're experiencing the default and you're letting your normal biological, psychological, physiological mechanisms be. You're letting them be as they normally would be throughout history. When you're meditating and you're just paying attention to your thoughts coming and going and your surroundings or your breath or whatever it is you're paying attention to, whatever's going on, that's the default, right? It's not the default to be caught up in all sorts of concepts about your reputation or your future or your plans or your regrets. That's, that's something your modern neurotic society has infiltrated you with. And that's not normal, the default. So you're not doing good. You're just not, you're letting the default take over. And from sort of a bottom up perspective rather than top down authoritarian perspective, like, oh, I've got to post more content. That's the authoritarian saying, you must do this. You need this. This is the goal we want. And this, I'm going to force you to do this goal. That's top down. But bottom up is the default. Fears about what happens if I do or don't post or results. That's not the default. And I have a friend, old friend of mine, and I love the guy. He's a very smart and capable person, but he just never really could have a job for more than a short period of time. And it just wasn't in his constitution to do that kind of a thing. And brilliant guy. I mean, I hung out with him a lot, uh, smoked weed with the guy a lot. And I always thought about him, but maybe this is just sort of a mirror to me also, that if he could just stop worrying about all the stuff he wasn't achieving that he himself would be sort of a living artist. Like he was kind of an artist. So he would, he himself could be the, uh, the art and let it take him where it goes. And he was a very uh, kind of charismatic and stylish guy. And he didn't need to achieve by the standards of society or whatever had been, whatever malware had been implanted into his brain to things that he thought he needed to be. And so I always thought if he could just stop worrying about that and planning and scheming to to be something he wasn't or do something he hadn't done yet you know that maybe like that guy would be enlightened but maybe it's the same with me you know maybe it's the same with me that if i could just stop worrying about producing content how much am i producing i mean i'm already like i know it's a problem i know being motivated in that way ambitious in that way is a problem for peace of mind and I'm not saying that if you stop being ambitious that you'll stop working. I think it's the opposite. I think you'll do your best work because you'll, you'll, you won't have that force, that Todd Marinovich dad breathing down your neck and, and making it unpleasant. And in fact, you can just play the game the way you enjoy playing it. So I think there's a fine line. And again, like it's very easy to like just party and socialize. But if, if I say, you know, put a limit on that, limit that to a small extent, then your normal waking up and understanding what's going around you is going to drive you to communicate, going to drive you to uh, express yourself. And that's sort of where I'm trying to be is just natural expression arising from a need to say something, not, hey, I've got to put out X pieces of content a week. And that's why I'm always struggling with, hey, don't subscribe to this podcast. Contribute. I love that. It's a great vote of confidence for me. It gives me the feedback that what I'm doing is useful but don't subscribe on a rolling basis because then I'm just going to have a boss and the boss is going to be me and the boss is worse than any boss I could have. So I don't want that boss. I want no boss. I want the default. 
I just want the default. I'm not doing good. I'm not a good person. I'm not a hard worker. I'm just the default. And if the default is, hey, I got something to say, hopefully I'll say it. And maybe that's too self-reflective and boring. I'll see in the, in the edit whether I leave this in. A couple other ideas. I'll flesh these out. Maybe I'm burning these, but I've got so many and I won't use them all. One of them was that I saw the uh, Bitcoin maxis say real estate is a shit coin. They talk about shit coins like Ethereum and Solana and millions of others I've never heard of because they're not as decentralized. They're not decentralized really at all and censorship resistant at all. And so they're just sort of trading on speculation. Whereas the other one is actually if the government says, hey, this is a problem, they can't do anything to shut down Bitcoin really. They can temporarily make it more difficult, but they can't really shut it down. And so shitcoin is an insult. It means a coin that's not going to uh, retain any value in the long term. And they say real estate is. And I always thought real estate's number one, right? I mean, at least after Bitcoin or in the real world, real estate's number one. It's scarce. It's got a, a base level of utility that's never going to go to zero. You uh, can live in it. Uh, living somewhere is the most important asset you can have, your home. Why is it a shitcoin? Well, I started thinking about it. There's property taxes, which means you never really own your home. You're still renting it from the government, so to speak, with your property taxes. And they can raise them, right? Now there's laws in place that say, you know, property taxes can only go up X, but those laws can be amended. There's an emergency. Oh my God, there's an emergency. There's a climate emergency and you have too many houses. So I'm sorry, we're going to have to seize them from you. Well, we're not going to see Jeff, Jeff Bezos' houses because Jeff Bezos is doing the space mission or whatever. And so it's really important for him to have his assets in places he needs to go. Just like, you know, the the people in Davos who say, oh, well, you know, climate change is an emergency, but we need to fly our private jets there to convene about this important emergency. Yeah, it's an emergency for you, but for them, what they're doing is so important that, of course, it would be hugely inefficient for them to uh, fly commercial or to uh, maybe take a boat. How about a sailboat? Wind-powered boat, take a month, leave a month early for Davos. It's that important. Ride your bicycle when you get there, a few countries over, you know, take the sailboat to Portugal, get on your bike, ride it over. The, the rich people, the, not the rich people, the very, 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 the ruling class, so to speak, will, there'll be a justification for why they keep their houses. But you can see, hey, that house you're renting out, store of value, you have to raise the property tax of it to uh, disincentivize homes because of the emergency. You're using up too much. Or there's an economic collapse and you can't have a second home as a store of value. So there's a risk, right? You, that, that your home can be seized. Property taxes can be raised. If taxes get raised high enough, it's, it amounts to a seizure, so to speak. It's you're, you're renting your home from the government. Then there's maintenance. Ah, a tree needs to be cut. Oh, okay, that's 800 bucks. Oh, the uh, plumbing's not working. That's 1,200 bucks. Oh, the roof needs to be replaced. That's 15,000 bucks. So you've got all this maintenance you need for your house. You got your property tax for your house. And then you collect rent from your tenant. Now you're lucky you have a good tenant. That's great. But your tenant may want to buy a house elsewhere. They may want to, you know, they may be a deadbeat. They may lose their job. They may be a good person, but they unfortunately lost their job. And what are you going to do? Throw them out? Now you got to manage tenants. And if they do leave, now you got to vet new tenants. You got to repaint. You got to, you know, you got to manage this business of the, the rental business. Now it can be a good business. Don't get me wrong. But you can see why you're now running a business that, that takes effort when really all you did was you had some surplus value that you created, you wanted to store it somewhere. You couldn't store it in a bank in dollars because they were like a melting ice cube. And so you bought real estate, which seems to go up. And now you've got all these headaches. You've got these risks. You've got these headaches. So that's why they say real estate is a shit coin as opposed to Bitcoin, which you buy it, you store it. It can't be inflated like the dollar. It's not a melting ice cube. 
You don't need to really maintain it. You have to protect your private keys, but you don't need to uh, put extra money just to maintain it. Not very much at least. And you don't need to run it like a business. It can just be there for you when you need it. So I understand real estate's a shit coin in a way. I still believe in having some real estate if you have surplus value. But if Bitcoin became the store of value that I think it might be, then real estate would probably decline to its utility value, the value of living in it, uh, which is still considerable, but it's probably half of the current value. I don't know, 30% of the current value, 40%, whatever it is, because so many people who have surplus wealth don't know what to do with it. And they buy extra houses just for the store of wealth aspect. And, and if that's not necessary, because you have this much more low maintenance version that can't, that's not being property tax, then people will sell and uh, move into Bitcoin. All right. Couple other things. Uh, I'm going to do another unsent tweets and I have some memes that I never sent out that I made thought for various reasons, I didn't send them out, but uh, I'm going to have another article about that. I, I was thinking of doing, but it's just so ambitious. I know people would like this. I, I feel like this is needed, but I don't know if I have the wherewithal to do it right. But a comprehensive, I mean, absolutely comprehensive post about COVID fraud, starting with COVID origins. It came from a lab, right? I mean, the thing leaked out right next to where the lab was. The scientists who first discussing the leak over email suspected it was from the lab. And then a couple of days later, they shut down all conversation and called anyone who suspected it was from the lab, made the obvious inference that the thing, all the places in the world where the virus broke out, hey, it's right next to the place where they're doing this gain of function research on these very viruses. Hey, what a coincidence. All the people that made the obvious inference, they were called conspiracy theorists. Only if it were actually from the lab, would you want to shut that down, right? I mean, to me, that's, that's motivation. You know, you would not be vindicated by the evidence. You just want to shut down conversation. So they had something to hide. They destroyed evidence. Why would they destroy the evidence from the lab if, and the sequencing, if it were of natural origin? So it's very suspicious. The obvious inference is it came from the lab where they're working on those viruses right next to where the outbreak happened. The caves are like a thousand miles away. So there's still a chance that that's wrong, right? I mean, the obvious inference is not always right. The person with the bloody hand and the murder weapon, there could be some other explanation and he can give that explanation in court. But or it could be self-defense, which he'd have to affirmatively prove. But that's where I think it is. The burden of proof is so on the, the natural origin to prove that the obvious isn't the case. And they haven't met that burden. In fact, they destroyed evidence. So um, not just one, right? But, but what, what, that's the beginning. That's the sort of original crime after which everything is part of the cover-up. But if that were acknowledged, and I think the reason they don't acknowledge it, even though it seems pretty overwhelming at this point, is that... What does that imply? That implies that somebody screwed up, that it's somebody's fault. Even if it's a total accident, it's still somebody's fault. And, you know, and part of the fault is with the National Institute of Health that was funding these experiments. And this is all documented. This is not a, a theory. This is just a fact. It's a theory that there's a lab leak, but it's pretty likely to be true theory. And then the conspiracy involved is them covering it up. But that's actually a conspiracy fact because we have emails from Freedom of Information Act showing that they actually covered up a lot of their suspicions that it was from the lab. That was just another uh, reported fact. So this first part of the whole fraud is how did it start? They don't want you to know. They want it to be sort of this nebulous argument, conspiracy theorists and whatever, just shout a bunch of different epithets at each other and never get to the bottom of it. Because if you do, all these gain of function 
type experiments have to be shut down. I mean, they may have killed five, 5 million people and long COVID and everything else, you know, worldwide. I'm talking about or 2 million people or whatever, get into that fraud too, because the, we funded some totally unnecessary experiments that were extremely dangerous and they don't want to be accountable for that. So that's one, okay, the origins and the fact that nobody cares to prosecute the people. I mean, if you had a drunk driver accidentally kill four people, I mean, that guy's going to jail and rightly so, right? Because he screwed up bad. He didn't mean to kill people, but he did something reckless, screwed up bad, people died, and he's going to go to jail. And we would want to know what happened. Did he do it? How much did he have to drink? What was his blood alcohol level? We'd ask these questions. But the biggest disaster you know, in the last, I don't know, 50 years. And nobody is even interested in who was responsible. They want to bury that inquiry. It's, it's, what, it's too big for you. You can't even wrap your head around how sick it is that our own government was funding this stuff with another government and they killed this many people and locked people down and destroyed livelihoods and all this other stuff, which we'll get into. I mean, you, you can't even get there. It's so big. The crime is so big. People can't even, they're like, ah, stop talking about that. Just move on. Worry about fantasy baseball. Come on. Who wants to hear about this anymore? don't want to know. It's not important to you. Okay. Yeah. You're really mad that somebody said something out of line on Twitter or had the wrong views, or you don't care at all that somebody funded a virus that leaked and killed this many people. I mean, to me, that's just, it's just bananas that nobody, I mean, you should be enraged that this is happening. This is the biggest crime that happened. Okay. That's just, that's just level one. This is why I'm not writing this because to just document all that level one, but then level two, I mean, that's level one, level two. I mean, what percent of people who died of COVID died with COVID? Now they're revising everything down. The CDC says, oh, well, 25% of the people under 18 who died, we had to get rid of that. That, that. Those were, there was a coding error there. There was a coding error. They didn't really die of COVID. There's people who got into a car accident and died and they were, they had, they tested positive for COVID. That was marked as a COVID death. We really don't know. This data has been completely cooked for a long time. There was incentives where the hospitals were getting extra money if they marked a COVID patient, positive test, and if they declared something a COVID death, the incentives were to declare it a COVID death. So if the person actually had COVID and they died and there was probably something else that was by far the main cause, it would be marked as a COVID death. So these numbers are very screwed up. We don't even know. Then you have the PCR test. The inventor of the PCR test said this is not meant to diagnose a specific disease. It's too sensitive. It'll pick up a lot of other pathogens. And at the amount of cycles where they run the, the cycles to see what's there, it could pick up lots of different viruses or, or other ailments. So there's way more positive tests than were actual COVID cases. And then think about the fact that people died of or with COVID that was from that PCR test. So then again, the, the books are even more cooked. We're only in the testing COVID numbers phase, the raw numbers phase. We're not even in the, the frauds that happened after that. The Fauci noble lie saying, oh, you know, don't buy masks. They're not going to help. And then later saying, oh, the masks only, they do help. But we only wanted to say that because the uh, first responders needed the masks and they, we, we don't have a run on them. Then it turns out that Rochelle Walensky, a year and a half later, after people are mandated masks on their toddlers, those cloth masks, they don't even work. The CDC director says they don't even work. Vaccine, it's 95% effective. It's stopping spread. Joe Biden saying, if you get this vaccine, you won't catch or spread the virus. Totally false. There is no correlation between vaccination rate and case rate. Totally false. But we're not even at the beginning of this. And I'm, I'm missing like 20 different things. And I should actually pull up my notes on this. What else? Two weeks to flatten the curve. That was a total lie. Sold to have people become obedient. In the summer, early summer of 2021, both Joe Biden, his press secretary, Jen Psaki, and I'll get links in the, in the podcast, 
said that they don't have the authority to mandate the vaccine. And next thing you know, they're mandating it. The COVID tests that were mandatory for travel and for some other things, the CDC said that the 10% of those tests were sent for DNA analysis. Was that DNA of the virus or are they analyzing your DNA and your interaction with it? I don't know if they ever made that clear, but that's pretty sketchy that there's no consent form or if it is, it's buried in the fine print. There were all these propaganda memes that came out. ICU beds. If you don't get the vaccine, you're taking up an ICU bed. Really? If you're a 25-year-old healthy person, you don't get the vaccine. How are you taking up an ICU bed? Well, because other people who are less healthy are also taking up beds if they don't get the vaccine. What does that have to do with the 25-year-old who doesn't get the vaccine? That a 70-year-old who's obese also doesn't get the vaccine if that guy ends up in the ICU. Why is that? Are you in the same group because you, because you both made the same decision, even though you're totally different metabolically? If you both wear orange shoes, are you in the same group? You did something in common, so you're in the same group. A 25-year-old healthy person not taking the vaccine is not likely to wind up in an ICU bed. So how is it relevant that other people who are more likely to made their own health decision? Not that there's anything wrong with taking up an ICU bed, by the way. Why are they demonizing that? And also the fraud about that whole meme is that ICU beds are like 95% occupied all the time. Why? Because it's more cost efficient. You don't want to have 50 empty ICU beds in for-profit hospitals. The amount of ICU beds per citizen declined precipitously since the 70s, apparently, due to hospital consolidation and the profit motive. And so when it's like, oh, they're 99% occupied. Yeah, two more people showed up. Yeah, they go from 95 to 99. And why is it on the population? We never asked this question to be worried about the ICU bed situation. The, the, the ICU beds should be expanded if there's a disease going around. It's not my responsibility to run the healthcare system. Everybody has an incentive to take care of their health as best as they see fit. So if somebody didn't want the vaccine, they obviously feel that that is better for them. They could be wrong about that. It might turn out, but it's not their job to run the healthcare system for you. Don't put it on them. At a certain point in May of 2021, they stopped testing. The CDC stopped counting positive tests for the vaccinated because they had said they had lied and said it stopped the spread or they had some disinformation or misinformation that it had stopped the spread that, that you couldn't catch it. And then, of course, vaccinated people started catching it. So they stopped counting the cases in May of 2021, uh, at least the non-hospitalized cases, just to make the case numbers look better. Also, when they were talking about these precious ICU beds that the unvaccinated are greedily taking up, they neglected to mention that if you took a vaccine, took a shot of the vaccine, but you didn't have your second dose, you were counted as unvaccinated. So some of the people in the unvaccinated camp actually did have a vaccine. They just had one. Moreover, some people had two shots, but they just hadn't had that 14 day or whatever the period was for the second shot to kick in. So many of the people taking up ICU beds were single vaxxed or double vaxxed, but without the sufficient time. And so if you look at the entirety of the amount of people taking up ICU beds, some of them were actually vaxxed. It was just the way they counted it. Okay. Another thing they did, they denied natural immunity. At first they, they put out these bogus studies saying natural immunity may not be as durable as vaccine immunity, but now they want people to take a fourth booster within what, 16 months of the vaccine coming out. So which one is not durable? And they found out obviously that natural immunity is much more durable and much more comprehensive. And moreover, the vaccine doesn't stop the spread at all. And in some studies enhance the spread of Omicron because they're still giving the booster, by the way, for the first alpha virus. They're not, they haven't updated the, uh, the vaccine to keep pace with the variants. Another huge scandal, they, they destroyed anyone who was for ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, vitamins, vitamin D, 
Um, I've seen tons of studies that shows that stuff is effective. I've heard many doctors who had their reputations destroyed. They have no incentive. I mean, what they did was financially and reputationally suicide to say, you know, I've treated these guys with ivermectin and I haven't had a single death or I've had a very small percentage of deaths. They just came out with an ivermectin study that showed it doesn't work. And then everybody who I trust criticized the study and said, dude, they gave it way too late. The patient was already gone. You have to give it right at the beginning. There's parameters and ways to do it. And they set up the study to fail. They set it up to make it to fail. And they throw the headlines around New York Times. Everybody says, see, it doesn't work. It never worked. I'm not here to tell you it worked or not. You can consult your, consult your own studies. But it wasn't just ivermectin or hydrochloroquine or vitamin D or NAC or quercetin or all of these different things that anecdotally seem to work a lot for a lot of the doctors treating all these patients. And in combination, they just said, if you're sick, go home. If you're hospitalized and can't breathe, go to the hospital. Well, how many deaths would have been prevented if we had just focused on some early treatments that whichever ones you agree with or don't agree, the idea that nothing possibly helps COVID, they never, there was no official protocol for that. And all of the doctors who treated all these patients and claims to do so successfully, these guys have very specific protocols with different agents. Some of them are ivermectin and hydrochloroquine. Some of them are less controversial, like vitamin C and zinc and vitamin D. And they, they seem to think all those are very important, but officially that wasn't the policy. No early treatment. They denied it. Okay. There's more, but there's more fraud. It, it, it goes deeper than this. Pfizer didn't want to release its application to the FDA. They said, we're going to take 75 years to release this. Of course, people sued and now they're starting to release some of the documents. They didn't even want it. Why wouldn't you? It should be transparent. One of the reasons I think that the early treatments, whether, whether you believe hydrochloroquine or ivermectin or vitamin, you know, combinations of vitamins and herbs or whatever work is that in order to get this vaccine fast-tracked and passed for the public for emergency use, you couldn't have another effective treatment. To have an emergency use, you need all other treatments to be declared ineffective. So of course they declared them ineffective. So there was a huge incentive not to do that. Think about the cost in lives if they were effective, how many people would be saved? I, I follow some doctors who think basically half the deaths could have been avoided, at least half the deaths. You know, hundreds of thousands of people in the US would be alive if they had given them these early treatments. That's his opinion, and it's shared by many doctors. What else? Nobody encouraged health. Nobody said, get outside, get some vitamin D, get some exercise, lose some weight. Uh, be careful what you eat during a pandemic that overwhelmingly affects the obese and the people with pre-existing conditions. No uh, advice to that effect. No health encouragement. Oh, that emergency authorization that they got because nothing else worked, because they proved that nothing else worked, that also shields them from liability, from uh, civil liability, should somebody have an adverse reaction to the vaccine. And they actually did get the vaccine approved, approved, I think Pfizer and Moderna did, but yet they're not giving the approved vaccine. You can look this up. This is crazy. The vaccine that was actually approved by the FDA is not the one being given. It's the one that's still under emergency use. Why? I assume because the approved one, I think, would be subject to liability. The emergency one is not because it's an emergency. These guys are doing heroic things creating this miracle vaccine. You can't hold them liable for saving so many lives. If they gave the approved one, then I think that one would render them liable. There's also some data about adverse effects. The VAERS database, which is the government compilation of all the adverse effects. Now it's self-reported, but it has to be attested to under oath. It's not just like crackpot doctor reporting that. He could be liable if it's a lie. There are so many more reports per capita for this vaccine than there are for all the other vaccines combined. So the VAERS database was one signal. There's insurance data saying there's a 40% increase 
in deaths between people of working age, 20 and 65 or something like that. And so they're actuaries who are pretty smart uh, about estimating people's lifespans when they're selling life insurance, uh, lost a bunch of money for the company because many more people in that age group died than uh, they had calculated from non-COVID deaths. This is not from COVID. This is 2021, not 2020. There's funeral home data that shows that their business is booming. Again, not from COVID. This is in 2021, not 2020. And there's a military, the military healthcare info. I don't know what the database is called. Military members are much more carefully and closely. It's much more rigorous data because they're, it's much more regimented. They submit to many more medical tests and it's not just all these random people who don't go to the doctor for five years. And that showed a huge uptick in, in heart attacks and cancers and all sorts of uh, ailments. So this is, you know, so I wanted to document this with all of the links and everything else. Uh, but it's just such a massive, massive undertaking to get it right. So I don't know. I'll probably cut some of this. I didn't intend to go on this long of a rant. Uh, and I mean, the reason I, I'm happy to do that actually, though, is that I, I don't really know if I'm up to the task of meticulously documenting all that stuff. Maybe I'll just post some links and leave this as that because it's it's a project I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm, it's, it's so dispiriting to look at the fraud upon fraud upon fraud. I'm probably leaving out 10 things that were also fraudulent. Every day there's something else like, oh, and this was fake too. Oh, they reduced this too. Oh, there's a coding error for this. Oh, this actually didn't work the way it was supposed to. It's mind boggling. Anyway, I promised some baseball talk. And I want to talk about this math article I wrote. And I know everyone hates that, but I think I'm going to talk about it. And then I'll talk a little baseball. Yeah, I got to do it. I'm sorry. I got to do it. I just, I just love this so much. And I've tried to talk about this before. Don Del Don didn't care about it. Nobody really seems to care about it except me. But I'm going to get you guys to care. My mission, one of my missions in life is to get people to see how fascinating this topic is. And if I, I, I haven't succeeded, I'm definitely failing at this point. But it's just one of my main missions in life. I just feel like this is so fascinating, large numbers. And I talked about it in another essay, which I linked to in this. This one's called Growth. I linked to the the one that shows why you should care. Just fast forward if you don't want to hear this, but don't fast forward because you need to hear this. This will make your life more enriched. I promise you, if you can get it and you can get it. People look at math, they're like, this is terrifying. You look at like that Nassim Taleb calculus stuff that he posts and I have no idea what the hell it is. I want to learn, but I just don't know it. I, I should have learned it. I did study some calculus, but I just couldn't deal with all the symbols and it just made my brain hurt. But this is easy. This is so easy. We're going to go through this. You're going to get it. And you're gonna, your mind's going to be blown when you're done with this. Okay, so very simple. When you go from small numbers to large numbers, the first way you learn to do that is from counting. One, two, three, four. When you're a child, you learn to count. And then you learn after that that actually you can make some jumps. You don't need to go from one to two to three to four. If you're at two, you can just add three and go straight to five. So addition is iterated counting. You're doing three counts in one jump. Instead of two, three, four, five, you're just going to do two plus three, it's five. Okay, so I'm pretty sure you're still with me now. So addition, adding, is just an iteration, repeated counting. That's all it really is. Counting all at once. Counting big chunks all at once. All right, simple. But after addition, you can say, okay, well, let's see. We can get to a bigger number. Three plus three plus three plus three. That's 12. And keep adding threes. And some says, you know, you don't need to add four threes. You can just go four times three and get to 12. I know you're still with me. So iterated addition is multiplication, right? It's just adding a bunch of threes at once. Very simple. Now we're at multiplication, four times three. And then you're like, all right, 
Well, three times three is nine times three is 27 times three is 81. Well, we can multiply times three. Well, you know what? You don't, you can iterate multiplication. It's called exponentiation. And I know most of you understand this three to the fourth power is 81. You can just put a little subscript four on top of the three and it's saying you're going to multiply out three, four times. So now with exponentiation, we can explain certain natural processes that we can't with multiplication. We can explain the spread of a virus. We can explain um, how bacteria grow. We can explain how population growth happens or reduces. We can explain all sorts of things with exponentiation that we just simply cannot explain uh, with multiplication. It, it allows a much bigger paradigm for our world. The exponentiation, exponential growth is possible. And that's where pretty much everybody leaves off. Okay, I get exponentials. The logarithmic scale that earthquakes, the Richter scale is measured on. You know, we, we understand exponentiation. But just as you can iterate addition into multiplication and multiplication into exponentiation, you can iterate exponentiation. And okay, well, how would you do that? Well, instead of three times three times three times three, which is three to the fourth, you could go three to the three to the three to the three. So you can keep putting little superscript threes on top in a power tower. So you could say three to the three to the three to the three. That's not three to the fourth power that would just be three times three times three times three. This is three to the third power, to the third power, to the third power. Now, a way to do that, the notation that, that I'm familiar with, it's not the only way, I don't think, three arrow, arrow, four. All that means is three with two arrows. Two arrows means it's a three. The first number before the arrows is the base, it's three. And the number after the two arrows is the height of the towers. How many threes are gonna stack up? Now, Let's do some really easy math, right? So if two arrow, arrow two, well, the base is two and the after the arrows is a two. So it's a, a power tower of twos, two high. So two to the two, that's four. So two arrow, arrow two is four. It's a power tower of twos, two high, which is two to the two, which is four. You guys are still with me. Come on, you're, this is easy, easy, easy. All right, let's do three arrow, arrow two. Well, that's a power tower of threes, two high, it's two after the arrows, three arrow, arrow two. It's three to the three which is 27, three times three times three, 27, three to the third. No problem, easy. All right, let's do two arrow, arrow three. Now that's a power tower of twos, three high. So it's two to the two to the two. Well, two to the two is four and two to the four, that's 16, right? So easy, two to the two arrow, arrow three, 16. All right, keep going, three arrow, arrow three. All right, a power tower of threes, three high. So three to the three to the three. Well, three to the three is 27. Three to the 27 is, oh, that's 7.625 trillion. Oh, wait, what the hell just happened? We were talking about 16 and 27 and four, and now we're on 7.6 trillion. Okay, this is a powerful function. This grows fast. You put a couple of arrows and just two threes and you're at 7.6 trillion. Right. And you can see, and I put this on a spreadsheet, that as you go with these arrows, you know, four arrow, arrow four is even bigger four to the four to the four to the four, which is a huge number. But anything arrow, arrow two, even if you have a big number, like a hundred arrow, arrow two, right? I did this in the spreadsheet in the article. A hundred arrow, arrow two is a hundred to the hundredth power. What is it? It's two zero. It's what? A, a one with 200 zeros or something. That's a pretty big number. A hundred to the hundredth power. So if you, if you make the base bigger, so instead of going two arrow, arrow two, you go a hundred arrow, arrow two, you get this big number, a hundred to the hundredth power. But that's not really how you make it get really big, really fast. The second way is to increase the number after the arrow. So what happens? Well, if you go two arrow, arrow three, 
that's not a big deal. We said that's 16, right? Two to the two to the two, you know, two to the four, 16. But if you get to two arrow, arrow, arrow five, where there's a power tower of twos, five high, you've already broken the spreadsheet. So raising that number after the arrows is when you start cooking with gas. And so you can go to a hundred to the hundredth power seems big, but it's basically zero compared to two arrow, arrow five, because two to the two to the two is 16, two to the two to the two to the two is 65,000 something. And then two to the 65,000 is just off the scale because two to the 256, I know this from Bitcoin is 10 to the 77. There's 10 to the 80 atoms in the universe. There's 10 to the 18 atoms in a grain of salt. Now you're talking about atoms in the universe. That's just two to the 256. Two to the 65,000, that's not a number that you can wrap your mind around. So just two, arrow, arrow five is just out of control. And these things grow really fast. But if you want to grow the things insanely fast, you don't just, you don't increase the number after the arrows, you increase the number of arrows. So this is going to be the tricky part. If you go three arrow, arrow three, that was 7.6 trillion. But if you go three arrow, arrow, arrow three, now we've got a, a problem because the third arrow just says, repeat what you did with the two arrows. And the number before the third arrow says, that's your base. And the number after the third arrow says, that's how many double arrow threes you're going to have. So it's three arrow, arrow, three, arrow, arrow, three, right? There's three threes because that's the number. And there's a three in the beginning. That's your base. And we know that three arrow, arrow, three is, you know, three to the three to three is 7.6 trillion. But now because it's, you have to do it again. It's three arrow, arrow, 7.6 trillion. And remember the 7.6 trillion is the height of the power tower. So it's a power tower of threes, 7.6 trillion high. Now, if you get to three with a power tower five high, you're already bigger than a Googleplex. You got to get to 7.6 trillion high. Uh, we already showed that two with the two five high was already breaking the spreadsheet. You got to get 7.6 trillion high. Tim Urban, the guy, the wait, but why guy has a great post on this. He goes into a lot of detail. Glad I linked to it in my piece. It's excellent. But the point is when you increase the number of arrows, you are starting to make numbers that you, your brain can't even fathom. And it goes further three arrow, 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 arrow three, which I can't describe it on a radio thing. Uh, Tim Urban does a decent job. And I finally figured out how to describe it on paper, which I may do at some point. I may have lost some of you somewhere, but I just love this stuff. And, and, you know, there's no limit to where this can go. And I have links to all of it. All right. That's that. Fast forwarded. That's fine. I don't, I probably didn't do as great a job explaining it as I might have. And let's get into uh, my NFBC draft because I felt pretty good about it. All right. So I picked 12th overall. I knew this going in, obviously. And I was really torn on this first pick. I was hoping to get Max Scherzer. That was my pick. I don't think he was making it to 12 usually, usually 11 or 10. And then he had a hamstring injury and he said it was nothing. And it looks like he's going to make a start. But at the time I didn't know, I knew that he said it was nothing, but I didn't know that it was nothing. Um, and we'll see if it crops up. And it was just enough for me not to want to take him there. So I said, okay, I'm not taking Scherzer with the hamstring in the first round. I'm not taking Bueller. The projection systems don't like him very much. And I, I think unless he's an exception to the rule, which he might be, 
those things are usually pretty good for players. I don't have a really strong counter belief too. I won't go with the projections if I have a strong uh, counter belief, but Bueller I like, but I didn't have a strong belief about him. So I defaulted to him not really being worth the first round pick. And Woodruff also, I felt, uh, throws a little bit too hard for my taste, sort of more of a risk of an injury. And he was a possibility, but I, I decided he was also a second round pick. So I knew I probably wasn't going to get a pitcher. And then it was which hitter. And I settled on Kyle Tucker, who's just good in all five categories. And he's young and he's in a good offense. So I, I, he was my first pick, but I, he was going a little bit ahead. I thought about Luis, Luis Robert, but Robert is kind of like a Ferrari to me. He tore his I think, ACL a couple years ago. He was hurt most of the year last year with some kind of injury. And then he got a little banged up. He had sore back in the playoffs. So Robert is like a, a Ferrari to me. He's going to be great when he plays, but uh, I don't trust him to stay healthy. So I was like, all right, who's going to be Tucker, hopefully. And if Tucker doesn't make it, it's either going to be Mookie Betts, probably Mookie Betts. He'll probably make it. And if Betts doesn't make it, then probably one of those other guys like Harper or someone will make it. So sure enough, Tucker goes at pick 11. Um, Woodruff even went pick 10. And I take Mookie Betts, and I'm happy with that. I mean, Mookie Betts is a rock-solid guy. He was hurt last year, but he's still 29 uh, in a great offense. He may lead off. I wanted to get some steals also, that first pick. Okay. Now that I knew that Mookie Betts was probably going to be my guy, I thought, okay, who do I want in round two? And it was going to be Trout or Acuna because I wanted Acuna because even though there's a risk with the ACL, uh, and I'll get into the Acuna thing because Jeff and Todd Zola were giving me a hard time saying, oh, I'm so worried about Scherzer's minor hamstring injury, but I'm not worried about Acuna's major ACL tear. And that's fair. But ACL tears we know about, right? We, we know about it from NFL. It's been about nine months since the surgery. Even running backs and receivers sometimes come back. Acuna doesn't have to play NFL football. I feel like, you know, they're going to put him in the outfield in May. If he's running in the outfield, he'll steal bases again. He, he's going to get some DH at bats early. That extra week in April due to the lockout really helps mitigate the time missed. You know, instead of missing three weeks or two weeks, he maybe misses one or two weeks. So Acuna would be a top three pick if he were completely healthy. So to me, that was great. And I started dreaming of the uh, Sean Childs method. Sean Childs is an NFBC Hall of Famers, won a lot of big events. And uh, he used to say he liked to get 75 homers and 75 steals with his first three picks. I thought, you know what? That's not a bad idea to do it that way. So when I got those two guys, I thought I'm going to take Bobby Witt Jr. in the third. Uh, he had just been, it had just been announced that he was uh, breaking camp with the team. There was a little bit of a risk that he would start in the minors for service time reasons. Uh, once that was out, I thought, you know, he goes from fourth or fifth down to third. Uh, he's easily a 30-30 guy. If he stays healthy, batting average, we'll see. But those skills are there. And what a monster prospect. Number two overall pick in the amateur draft a few years ago. I mean, just... You know, the pedigree's there. He's living up to it. He lived up to it in the minors last year. So I basically got Betts and Acuna. And then in round three, you know, Bieber slipped a little bit. Not really that close to me. I was hoping to get him. But Matt Olson almost slipped to me, and I really like him there. But he went one pick before me, which I was kind of relieved. So I could just, you know, do what I meant to do and take Wit. So I get Wit. I get my 75-75. What am I going to do in the fourth round? Well, I don't have a pitcher. I was looking at, you know, getting Lindor there because I really like Lindor as another power speed guy and a bounce back guy. I like real Muto, but for some reason I had a weird vibe about it that I wasn't going to take the catcher there, especially real Muto. He's just had a little bit of mileage on him. And those are really it. Maybe Aaron judge, but yet another outfielder. I didn't really think I needed. 
So I went with the pitcher, my top pitcher left. Verlander had just gone. Freddie Peralta had just gone. I went with Robbie Ray. And I feel a little bit uncomfortable taking a guy off a career year and signing a big contract in a new place. But, you know, he did his damage in Toronto. He's in a more favorable environment in the AL West and in Seattle. And if you pay for last year's numbers, he'd be a second round pick. But not last year's numbers. He'd be a first round pick. But last year's performance straight up. I think there's skepticism built in with Ray. His ADP was third round. I got him in the fourth. I'm not loving the pick, but I wanted some strikeouts. I didn't have any pitchers, and he is one of the best strikeout pitchers in baseball. So I took Ray. Okay. Round five, I was hoping to get a role this Chapman. That was the dream pick. I think he's as good as any closer. He had a little hiccup in for a month last summer, but I like the old Warhorse closers. He's on a good team, still throwing 100 miles an hour. And two picks before me, Chapman goes. Okay, no big. Got to pivot. And I end up taking Will Smith, the catcher in the Dodgers. I think he could be a difference maker for power and average from a spot that, you know, is usually a throwaway spot. So I take Will Smith round six comes back and I'm thinking, do I take Carlos Rodon who I have in a couple of leagues and who I really like in San Francisco, or do I take the last, in my opinion, top tier closer in Craig Kimbrell and Kimbrell got roughed up in his first outing, but this is a small sample and Dodgers paying him a lot of money and it's the best team to be on for save. So I took Kimbrell. Also, my partner, Tim Schuler gave me a little list of players and he liked Kimbrell. So took Kimbrell. Round seven comes around and I need a starting pitcher. I need more starting pitching. And I'm looking at the top guy on my list and I'm looking at recent ADPs from the last five or six main event drafts and Kershaw's the guy. He was going around 100, 103. Him or Bassett. Schuler liked Bassett. I like Bassett too. I thought maybe I'd get Bassett way back. I take Kershaw. Bassett's gone two picks later. Okay, no big deal. I want to get another pitcher. Uh, I could have taken Sonny Gray. He's a little ahead of ADP. I could have taken Sean Mania in San Diego. I take Luis Garcia. Felt weird taking him. I did a little research on him the night before. Great rookie season. A lot of strikeouts. Good environment to pitch in. Good team to be on. But I don't really like these random guys without track records as pitchers. But I took him. I, I sort of regretted it when Vlad Sedler took Sonny Gray about 10 picks later. But it is what it is. Round nine comes around. I was looking at Fernando Tatis, but he went and it's probably for the best. You really need those uh, picks in the main event. I was looking at Andrew Kittridge, who Schuler likes for second closer. He went, I was a little relieved. I didn't really want to use two top 10 picks on a closer. Uh, I ended up set settling for Anthony Rendon, a guy I never draft, a boring guy, but um, he's going to probably be hitting behind Trout and Otani. That's a lot of RBIs. Uh, he's a professional hitter. He's one of those guys that I think will be able to hit as long as he stays healthy. That's always a big question for him. And uh, it's good batting average. You know, I have bets for batting average. Acuna's solid batting average. I don't know about Whit. Will Smith for a catcher is good batting average. Add more batting average. Batting average early allows you to buy power late. That's sort of the, the bonus that comes with it. All right. I knew I wanted to take Julio Rodriguez, by the way, in round nine. But, and this is before he was named to the uh, opening day roster. I was hoping he would slip to round 10 and Larry Schechter's picking right behind me. And Julio Rodriguez is not a Larry Schechter type of player. He's very solid, projectable type of guys. He drafts, he drafted Mitch Hanniger and Fran Mill Rays in the intervening rounds. He was not going to draft Rodriguez. So there's only four picks, two, two for two teams, team 14 and 15 that could have taken Julio. I made a gamble, took Rendon in nine, took Julio in 10, gets called up. I think he's probably like a six round player now. So I'm very happy with that now that he's broken camp with the team. Round 11, I get Gleyber Torres. Very happy with that. 
guy that I've been targeting for a bounce back. He even ran a little bit last year. Round 12, Alex Wood. I wanted him or John Gray, and Wood was ever so slightly higher in ADP. And I was hoping Gray would fall to me. Uh, no dice. He went in the 13th round before I pick. So I take Brendan Rodgers and the second baseman. Again, more batting average, course field, young player. And the theme of my draft is really old pitchers, young hitters for the most part. I think hitting is a young man's game. It's all about that bat speed and snap and, and power and quickness. And obviously stolen bases are a young man's game. And pitching to me is about craft, veterans, older guys. I think raw velocity for young guys is, is great for effectiveness, but dangerous for injury. So I like the older pitchers. All right, so I get Brendan Rodgers. Way back, I get Syndergaard, who's had a great spring. Schuler likes him. I like him too. Feeling pretty good about my pitching. Okay, I get Kirilov. I get Gavin Lux, who we both like. I get Miguel Sano, who's a Schuler guy. And Sano, I really like it in retrospect because he's a big-time power guy on what should be a good offense, but he's a batting average risk. But that batting average risk is mitigated by guys like Brendan Rodgers, Kirilov, Rendon, Betts. I don't have any other bad batting average guys. Maybe Witt would be. We'll see. But even he may, through his speed and just exit velocity, avoid a bad batting average. So I felt like I was in position to take Sano. Next round, I think Carrasco, Corey Kluber, two more veteran pitchers. Art Warren of the Reds, probably the closer to start the year with Lucas Sims out and with scrub closers. I think possession is nine-tenths of the law. I take him. Uh, Melanson fell a long way, and I almost took him, and I probably should have in round, I guess I would have to take him instead of Sano. I don't know. That was one that got away. We're, we're a little thin in saves. Then I took Keston Hira, who's had a monster spring. And remember, he was going in like the sixth, seventh round last year. And here was the big one. I passed on uh, Gary Sanchez, the second catcher for Keston Hira. Because once I took Sano, I felt I couldn't also roster Sanchez's batting average. I thought it was too risky. But it's, you know, as a DH, guy's not even going to play catcher, could get 550 at bats, could hit 40 home runs. If he even hits 225, you're okay. If he hits 200, you're not. Maybe I should have taken Sanchez, but I just couldn't pull the trigger. Way back, I thought he, he was still there. I was like, wow, I can still take him. And I went for Adley Rutschman, the uh, Orioles rookie who I know is out for a couple of weeks. And I thought, this is a little crazy. He's about 30, 40 spots beyond recent ADP. If he can come back in late April or early May, and if we can hold him that long, if we're lucky enough not to have other injuries, what a, what a tandem, Will Smith and Adley Rutschman. Adley Rutschman's 24. He's one of the top-hitting catching prospects of all time. If we, if we can hold him. I told Schuler he could drop him. It's this 22nd-round pick if he has to. Get Mackenzie Gore in round 23. He's made the team, it looks like. Andrew Vaughn slipped through a minor injury to 24. Eric Haas, the uh, outfielder catcher for the – Tigers, who may play more outfield with Riley Green out early on, as a guy to fill in a catcher while Rutschman gets healthy. Jock Peterson, you know, he hit better even against lefties last year. And if the Giants can fix Brandon Crawford and Buster Posey and Brandon Belt, why not Peterson? I mean, this total project guy they could turn around. And then I was just speculating on closers, mostly Joe Barlow, Stecken Ryder, and Trevor Rosenthal, if he ever signs, and threw in Connor Joe for good measure because Schuler liked him, possible starter in the Rockies outfield. But I love this team. Uh, saves are the one thing we're a little soft on. We do have one elite closer. You don't need as many saves. I've got a couple spec closers, but we may have to fab for saves. Otherwise, I think I have everything. Again, I said in the beginning, like this, this team was projections-wise considered last place, but I don't, I don't agree with that. I think they're just under-projecting Julio Rodriguez and Bobby Witt and you know maybe Gavin Lux now that Pollock is gone and perhaps Syndergaard and Carrasco 
Carrasco says he's healthy, uh, coming back from injuries. So I'm feeling pretty good. Try to win the main event. There's two things I want to do in the fantasy space. You know, I'm retired. I'm like Brady. I sort of unretired. There's two goals I have. One is to win the main event in the NFBC. I finished 12th about five, seven years ago. Wow, that's a long time ago. I finished 12th, which doesn't pay. The top 11 spots pay, or at least back then it didn't. And to win the uh, super contest, the Westgate super contest. Those are my two goals. And I have come somewhat close to finish 12th to win the NFBC main. I've never come close to winning the super contest. But to me, that would be the holy grail. Um, those two things would be really cool. Also, there's quite a bit of money attached. So that's my baseball talk. I'm super up on it now. We'll see how much I pay attention during the season. I've got Schuler doing the fab. He does a great job with that. I'll obviously be consulting with him. So I have a post on that on chrislist.com. I also wrote up my portfolio, which I've done for the last I think, 12 years, since 2011. You can look to all the players I've drafted. I have links going all the way back on RotoWire, and I link to it on my site. But I put my whole portfolio, all the guys I drafted in the Draft Champions Leagues I did, in the Beat Chris List Leagues I did. And I've got a lot of Julio Rodriguez. I've got some uh, Joe Adele. I've got some Bobby Witt. I feel good about these young players. And I'm pissed because I have Josh Lowe in two leagues, two draft champions leagues. And I had him in one of the B Chris list leagues. And I dropped him for David Robertson, who I believe is going to be the closer. By the way, I was targeting Robertson late and he went pretty early. He went in the 18th round in my league. And so somebody was onto that. So we'll see, but it was fun. Really enjoyed it. I'm glad I'm back in and it's going to be a fun team to watch. Now, of course, last year I thought my team was good too. And it was terrible. And, you know, I couldn't believe like, why can't Yoan Moncada hit a home run? Why can't Glaber Torres hit a home run? And you're just watching and it, it all falls apart and you're so sure these guys are going to be good. And then the season starts. But I will say that this year I really did more research. I think last year I was a little lazy. Of course, I know who the players are from doing this for so long. I know where the ADPs are. I know what people think. I know structurally how to you know do a heavy pitching draft early, how to pivot. I know all this stuff. I know how to get the categories balanced for an overall, but I feel like I didn't really dive into the details player by player to get enough sense of players that I like and don't like. I felt I was a little lazy sort of doing it from the 10,000 foot view and not really going in and getting my hands dirty with the player analysis. And I did more of that this year, maybe not as much as I used to 10 years ago, but I did more of that. And we'll see. It's why I drafted Luis Garcia. It's why I uh, picked a few of the guys I did. Anyway, we'll see. All right. As I said, I don't know when the next one's coming. I appreciate the uh, people listening and the feedback's been really nice. You can obviously contribute on the site. You know where to do that. Tell other people. That's very helpful. Uh, the positive reviews on iTunes are also very nice and encouraging. So all that stuff. But spreading the word is a huge thing. It's kind of weird to be doing like this baseball stuff mixed in with all this like heavy duty stuff. And I'm not really sure the balance going forward. But who cares? That's some that's some bullshit conversation uh, for it's an internal monologue. But Anyway, uh, I appreciate everybody listening and uh, who knows, I'll do one uh, when I do. And I'm also going to be on vacation next week. My mother-in-law is coming to town, to, to Portugal, and we're going, the family is going to a bunch of hotels and stuff. So probably won't be podcasting much. I'll have my notebook with me. I'll be taking notes when ideas come to me. All right. Yeah, that's it.